Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to look into the world of restaurants and hotels. In the first episode of this two-part series, we will focus on how restaurants and hotels have changed over the last few decades, both in the United States and around the world. We'll also look at current trends in those industries, what COVID-19's impact has been on the hospitality industry, and who's likely to survive or not survive there. Whether you are an owner, investor, operator, or employee in the hospitality industry, or just someone who dines out or travels, this episode is for you. Next week, in part two of this series, our episode will focus on the future of restaurants and hotels and what opportunities you might be able to capitalize on in the hospitality industry. To help us explore the fascinating and interesting hospitality industry, we've got ourselves a fantastic guest expert. She's Stephanie Robson, a native of Vancouver, Canada. Stephanie Robson holds three degrees from Cornell University and is recognized as an expert in the psychology of hospitality design. Dr. Robson was a member of the faculty at the distinguished Cornell University School of Hotel Administration for over 25 years, where she taught development and planning for hotels and restaurants. Her research and consulting practice focuses on how the design of hospitality environments influences patron behavior, attitudes, and perceptions. Stephanie has also presented her work in a wide range of academic and hospitality industry forums worldwide. She is also a co-author of the book, Hotel Design, Planning, and Development. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to Looking Forward. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to talk to you today. Well, I love talking about dining. I love talking about traveling as it relates to staying in hotels. Mm -hmm. So you are a great guest to have on Looking Forward. And I'm sure that I'm not the only one, that there are many millions of people around the world who feel the same way. Now, Stephanie, you're an expert on the restaurant and hotel experience. I'm wondering if you could please tell our listeners how and when did you become interested and involved in the hospitality industry? Well, like so many people listening, I got my first job working in food service, right? A lot of people either work for a supermarket or work for a restaurant, whether it's fast food or table service. And my first experience was working in the kitchen at a summer camp in Britain. And I loved it. I thought peeling potatoes was actually really entertaining, which was strange for a 17-year-old. But that turned me into someone interested in how you create a great experience for people. And so I worked in a few places, and then I thought, ah, I should get a degree in this. So I went to school for it and took it from there. Well, you are one of those people, and some of my guests have been like this, Stephanie, and just as many probably have not been like this, and that is... You figured out quite well at a relatively young age what you wanted to do in college and with your career. And I think that's wonderful because it really sets you on the path. It enables you to focus 
and not have clouds in your mind about, oh, I don't know what I want to do. And it eliminates a lot of confusion. Restaurants and hotels, I don't have to tell you, have changed a lot over the years, Stephanie. And I'm wondering, based on your wonderful expertise, if you can give our listeners an overview about some of those changes that have taken place over the last several decades. And we're going to bring you up to before COVID, up until 2020, because we're going to get into COVID a little bit later. And let's first have you focus, if you will, on the United States, and then we'll talk about the rest of the world. Sure. I'll talk about hotels a little bit, and then I'll pivot to restaurants, because they're really different. So hotels, you know, maybe 50 years ago, hotels were mostly owned and operated by the same individual, right? Mm. You built a hotel, you ran your hotel. And probably about 50 years ago, we started to see the shift towards branded hotels. And you probably know the big brands, right? Oh, yeah. Sure, they're, they're ones you've stayed in. And also hotels being owned by a separate entity than who's operating it. So when you drive down the road and you see a hotel with a brand name on it, and I'm just going to say Hilton, Hilton does not own that hotel. This is something that has changed over the last, as I said, number of decades. So you have hotel owners, you have hotel brands, and you have hotel operators, and they're all three different entities. So that has changed how people approach creating hotels. And it's put an emphasis on making hotels more consistent, if not in design, making them all look the same, but consistent in operations and consistent in feel because the brand has an identity they're trying to protect. So we've seen this sort of, uh, I will say, branding of, of hotels and this emphasis then on making them good real estate investments because you've got this owner who owns the building. They want to get a great return. So hotels have gotten more efficient. They've taken up less space and still providing great level of service. You've seen hotel rooms get a little bit smaller so yeah. you can get more rooms in the same size of building, right? And whereas 50 years ago, you'd have a hotel with a coffee shop and a fine dining restaurant, and you'd have a huge ballroom and a whole bunch of meeting rooms. We don't build them like that anymore because it doesn't make mathematical or financial sense. So now you'll see one big lobby space that's restaurant and coffee shop all together. And so this was how hotels had been changing into both an efficient box to operate that reflects well on the brand and a great investment. So that's hotels. Restaurants, on the other hand, we've seen a real sort of movement towards the independent restaurateur as being a rock star. We, have, we certainly have a lot of chain restaurants, but the food business, the restaurant business is perceived at being, uh, as being a low barrier to entry business. So you get a lot of people thinking, I could start a restaurant or I have a vision. And now with social media, I have a way of getting my word out more effectively. I'm going to start my own little place with my own vision of food. And so we're seeing, a, or we have been seeing a lot of restaurants that have a very strong point of view as opposed to this is for everybody, right? Think about maybe 25 or 30 years ago, restaurants menus were something for everyone. And now we have very specific concepts, very specific menus. And that is more about the entrepreneur. So up until COVID, we saw entrepreneurial restaurants really being successful and also being really important socially right? Where you went out to eat said something about who you are. 
And so people used restaurants as a social signifier on their social media feeds and say, look, I ate at this place. Whereas hotels, you know, yes, of course, people care about where they stay, but loyalty to a brand became very important because you could collect points. With restaurants, it was all about going to the latest, hottest place to show where you stood in the, the hierarchy, so to speak. So they're quite different, but it's really interesting to see how they changed. Boy, that is interesting. A few follow-up questions for you there. First of all, let's look at both hotels and restaurants, your expertise for sure. There are some hotels and restaurants that are franchise operated, right? Certainly McDonald's is a mm -hmm. restaurant that fits that mold. Is there a difference? Has there been a difference as we're looking backwards a little bit in how franchise hotels and restaurants operate and are designed versus how non-franchised corporate owned restaurants and hotels are operated and designed? Well, there are some differences. I mean, when you talk about corporate owned, like Starbucks, for example, it is a chain and they're all owned by Starbucks. There's no franchising of Starbucks. Whereas, as you say, McDonald's and some other brands that are familiar, yes, they're franchised. If you franchise, it's got to be something that is so easy to run and controlled by the franchising brand that you get this consistent experience. Whereas corporate owned, again, I'll use Starbucks as an example, they can afford to play a little bit and test to see what works and doesn't work. And then what works, they can roll out across their multiple units. You see perhaps a little bit more bravery on the part of the corporate owned because they can. Although interestingly, historically, franchise restaurants, that playing, that exploring, the franchisees were doing it. You might've heard the story of the filet of fish sandwich was created for McDonald's by a franchisee who recognized that a lot of his customers and maybe even himself, I don't know if he was, but a lot of his customers were Catholic and they wanted to stay away from meat on Fridays. And so he thought, well, I need to come up with something that can approach this market or appeal to this market. So he developed the filet of fish and it was successful. And so he went to corporate and said, hey, I got this thing. So this idea of experimentation, you'll see that difference for sure. On the hotel side of things, again, if you're independent, you can you can mess about and you can be flexible. Whereas if you are a corporate owned, right, you've, you've got this owner you need to appease uh, in terms of making sure that the project has a good return on investment. But I think the there's a bravery in testing new ideas um, that we didn't see initially in the whole sort of franchise world that corporate allows this potential much more effectively. And the way to collect information from guests has changed too. So they can be much more fine-tuned. They can dial in what works, what doesn't work, whether it's how you booked or what happened when you got there, what you spent money on, how long you stayed, all that kind of thing. Yes, data gathering seems to be such a big change in a lot of industries. I have a couple of other things while we're on this topic I want to ask you about. We've seen this happen so many times, Stephanie, in other industries. I'm only going to cite pharmacies, where you had the independent pharmacy when I was growing up in the Philadelphia area, but they were all over the country. And you went to your local pharmacist. And then what happened over the years, the chains started buying out all these pharmacies. My question is, what about the independent motel owner or hotel owner, how have they survived pre-COVID 
did they just sell out? Did they go out of business? What happened to them? Were they gobbled up? Well, independent operators of hotels, they had a tough time building or maintaining their physical asset to compete with brands. I mean, these are expensive buildings, right? And when you think about the traveling public, especially business travelers, they're traveling a lot. Knowing that they have a consistent experience wherever they go was really important to them. And of course, the, the addition of loyalty programs also made it really important. So for an independent hotel operator, it's really hard to go after that market. What we have seen in some cities is the independent hoteliers still can function because they can still sell rooms through online travel agencies, the OTAs, right? You talk about Expedia or Booking.com. So they can still compete, but that's really hard to do in smaller communities. So what you see in the independents in smaller communities are the unique ends. Now, you know, maybe if you've traveled around parts of the country, maybe places like the Finger Lakes where I live, there are lots of these nice little independent inns. And because they're independent, they can create this really unique experience that's unique just to the Finger Lakes or just to wherever you're traveling. Motels, another challenge with those is today's traveler doesn't want the kind of experience that most motels offer with an exterior corridor where people can see you going in and out of your room. Um, the rooms are small. Maybe you can hear your neighbors. So it's extremely difficult if you own a property like that to bring it up to today's standards in a way that's financially viable. Now, what's really cool is some of the more boutique operators are buying up these old motels and converting them into sort of what I'll call hipster experiences. Mm. So there are some really great examples of this, especially out West, where there's, there's one in, in Portland, Oregon called the Jupiter. And it was an old travel lodge with the exterior corridor. And it just looked like the kind of place that you would have traveled in the 50s with your parents or your grandparents. And a group of developers, including a couple of architects, took it over, kitted it out to make it look kind of cool. And they took the Denny's, which was on the corner, and converted it into a music venue. So now you can go to the Denny's and see a great band. And then you've got a place to, to sleep. I was going to say to crash, but, you know, hopefully sleep <laughs> hopefully. in this old converted travel lodge. And it's doing great. So there are opportunities for people who have a creative mindset to still take these older assets. And they're probably more affordable than trying to build from scratch. But it is really expensive to try to compete head to head with the brands. You've got to come up with a different experience. Okay. I love that example. That was great. Thanks for sharing that. One other question, and then we'll leave this topic for the moment, at least in the U.S. But actually, I, I did want to comment too, the loyalty programs, that's something that's changed as well over the last so many years. Can you say, and again, we're, we're still talking pre-COVID, we're going to get to this question later, I promise you. What has made the difference, in your opinion, between a hotel that was successful in this evolution that you've described and that hotel, and it could be a chain or not. And the same thing in the restaurant industry. We talk franchise, we talk non-franchise, we talk sole owner. What has made the difference from your perspective, Stephanie, and those who were thriving up until COVID, maybe they still are. What's made the difference? One word, flexibility. Really? Yep. Being able to pivot 
as conditions change. So I just mentioned earlier on a hotel that had an exterior corridor and you entered into your room. And, and as people got more concerned about security, that was no longer viable. So hotel companies that moved away from that model and started building interior corridors ended up with a more successful business. On the restaurant side of thing, as you know, people's eating habits change over their life. And also eating is a fad. And what, what we eat is a fad. And so restaurants that can alter to accommodate different ways of eating, different ways of paying, the ways that people like to be served as opposed to the old school, you know, someone coming to your table and, and giving you a menu and waiting for you. People want it a little faster now. So it really boils down to being flexible and recognizing what people want and giving it to them, which doesn't sound like an extremely difficult idea. But when you have a significant investment in the building and the operation, sometimes it's really hard to make those adjustments quickly and effectively. So the good places, the ones that have survived, have been able to do that. That's excellent. You could boil it down in one word, and I understand what you're saying. Turning the ship sometimes isn't easy, and turning it quickly is even harder. We have about 20% of our listeners, Stephanie, who live outside of the United States, and you yourself were originally from Canada. Is what you've said about the evolution of hotels and restaurants in the United States, is that similar to what's happened elsewhere around the world during that same period of time, or is it much different. I know you can't speak for every country and every place, but in general, is the rest of the world moving in lockstep with us or are they ahead of us or behind us? It's really different in different regions. So I will say on the hotel side of things, enormous growth in Asia, but in Asia, it is more likely that the person who owns the building is also operating it unlike in the United States where we often have these third party operators of hotels in China and other Asian markets, often you will have the owner and the operator together, but they're still branded. North American brands and European brands are very, very popular in Asia. So we're seeing enormous growth in that market. Europe is completely different in that Europe, although we still see branded hotels growing in urban, uh, what I'll call sort of the, the more business district parts of European cities and out at airports, a lot of European cities, and justifiably so, they want to keep their character, their unique identity. And so the independent hotel, which, by the way, may still be part of a brand, you just don't know it. Wow. We have these, these sort of stealth brands that are collections of hotels that actually use hotel brands to help market themselves, but they don't have the hotel name or the brand name on the door. Wow. So it's not unusual at all. For example, there's a hotel in Paris called the Hotel du Louvre, which for all intents and purposes looks like a classic Parisian hotel. And it is, it's a beautiful property, but it's part of Hyatt. So you don't happen to know that, but if you start booking, they're, back office, their engine for reservations is through Hyatt. So in Europe, we're seeing a desire to keep the unique experience of the hotels, especially in urban centers. But in China, we're seeing brand new, cutting edge, and sometimes very brave architecture with brand names right across the top. In the restaurant world, I don't know that there is as much variety in approach. You know, restaurants have always attracted entrepreneurs, whether you're in France or whether you're in China. 
So you're still seeing a lot of the small restaurants start up. Um, you do see chains, but they tend to be regional chains. So I think there is a pushback in a lot of countries to American brands appearing and they'd rather create their own brands that have their own character and they can be just as successful. In some cases, we can learn a lot from what some of these other brands are doing outside the U.S., but you'll see this hybridization of the, both approaches and operations and even food items. Let me give you an example. In France, and I use France as an example a lot because I, I go back and forth to Paris a lot because why wouldn't you? <laughs> but there is this idea of something called the French taco. Have you heard of this? No. So what you're seeing is places taking elements from different cuisines, different approaches, and kind of making it their own. And the French taco, the best way to describe it is imagine if a panini and poutine had a baby. <laughs> so you're wrapping a tortilla around French fries, meat, and cheese, and then you're cooking it on a grill. So it looks like a panini. It, there's nothing taco about that, but they call it French tacos, and it's a huge hit. So what you're seeing is this mishing and mashing of ideas from all over the place. And some of those ideas are coming out of the U.S., but I think there's more interplay because we're able to see these things on social media worldwide. So it's fascinating to see this sort of uh, what I'll again call hybridization, especially in the food world. I like that phrase hybridization, and it's also about globalization, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit more about other countries, I'm thinking of Canada, where you were from, perhaps South America, other places, Stephanie? Sure. Well, I'll start with Canada because I'm most familiar with it. And to be honest, it's very similar in many ways to what we see in the United States. There is a real enthusiasm, though, for the homegrown. I think every place you want to have your own country reflected in what you're doing. But the, the approach is very similar, both in hotels and restaurants in Canada. I've had a chance to visit Brazil. And what I've seen there is, again, very similar. It's a, a local interpretation of food trends, but putting their own unique spin on it. So, for example, I went to a place called Fiamma in Brazil, which is a, a pizza place. You know, think about Brazil and pizza. But it has this sort of, I won't call it carnival or, or uh, the sort of the Rio experience, but it really sort of has this enlivened, big venue, lots of noise and, and activity. We think of pizza parlors in the United States as being these sort of intimate corner places or just a place where you get delivery. Yes. And no, it's, it is a place to go and hang out and have drinks and have pizza. And there's a huge pizza oven in the middle of the space. And it's a three-store high space, which is the very flamboyant Brazilian experience. I've also had a chance to visit India. Uh, in fact, one of my former students has started one of the most popular restaurants in Delhi called Bombay oh. Kitchen. So what they do there, again, it's a, their own regional spin on the kinds of experiences. Because let's face it, people are people. We like to interact with others. We like to be in lively environments. That's why we go to restaurants. And so you'll see the same kinds of open, friendly, instead of being sort of the single entrepreneur who comes out to your table and sees how everything's going, it might be a more casual setting. Um, this restaurant in India that I'm familiar with, Bombay Kitchen, it, it's much more casual, uh, but it's still amazing regional food, but presented in a really kind of broad and may I even say Americanized way, although I'm sure that 
uh, my former students, if they listen to this, will roll their eyes at the American eyes. They're like, no, it's our own approach. <laughs> but it's, again, this, this idea of taking the best ideas and making them work for your customer base. I think that's universal. That's universal. And the chains, the franchises in hotels and restaurants, is that a global phenomenon? You alluded to it when you talked about, I think it was, they have a small hotel, but it's really a Hyatt. Yeah, Paris. Paris. Okay. So is that the case pretty much around the world where things seem to be more owned by bigger organizations rather than mom and pop? I know in restaurants, it seems like mom and pop is still quite popular. It is true that in the restaurant world, even here in the United States, individually owned restaurants are the majority. And in the hotel space, the United States, uh, I will call them branded hotels, which still can be owned by a mom and pop, but they've owned it as a real estate investment and they're not running it themselves. They've hired a third party management company. Outside the US in the hotel space, that isn't as common a structure. So, you know, you will see again, big chain branded hotels in the big cities worldwide. Absolutely. Once you go outside the cities or there's still lots of, of mom and pop hotels all over the world, um, whether it's Mexico City or if it's, it's Sao Paulo or it's Mumbai, they're still there. Absolutely. Part of that is because building in these cities is challenging and you've got an existing mom and pop hotel. It can stay in business easier in a place where new people coming in to build, it's difficult. In the United States, it's a little easier to build things. And there's, there isn't as much reverence for the old. Some cities are very different, obviously, but, and this is also what we see in Asia, there isn't the reverence necessarily for keeping old buildings and take an old building down and put up something new and fabulous. Whereas in other parts of the world, absolutely the idea of keeping that integrity of the original, what we'll call the vernacular of that area is very, very strong. And a mom and pop will work very nicely in that kind of context. It's fascinating the way that you're able to point out the distinctions between, for example, the United States and other countries. Well, this is the real benefit of travel, isn't it? Yes. Uh, going places. And I must admit, when I travel, I'm paying attention to the hotels perhaps more than the typical person is. Yes. But that said, getting out of your comfort zone and going to someplace new is absolutely, I recommend it to everybody. Well, that's a perfect segue. I did not plant this, people, but that is a perfect segue into what I want to ask you next, which is we all know that this thing called COVID has had a dramatic impact on most of our lives, some far worse off than others. We'll touch on that a little bit later. But what I wanted to ask you is, can you speak from your excellent and informed perspective, Stephanie, about what impact it has had on the hospitality industry? Sure. Um, I don't think it's a surprise. It's been devastating because people can't go places, <laughs> whether that means traveling away from home and staying in a hotel or just going to your favorite neighborhood restaurant. And the challenge has been, how do you take this business, which is rooted in a physical environment and allow it to function when people can't come to your physical environment? On the hotel side, of course, people aren't traveling. So let's face it, most hotels have really struggled. In fact, most of them have lost money. How could they not? They've been trying to find ways to generate some revenue. 
And whether that's using their kitchens to do home meal delivery, or whether it's housing essential workers. So uh, for example, the Four Seasons Hotel in New York City, during the worst of the COVID peak in New York in the spring of 2020, was housing medical professionals. We had people coming from all over the country to help because of this enormous surge of cases and they needed some place to stay. Well, can you imagine you work a 18 hour shift in a hospital and you get to go home to the Four Seasons to stay? I mean, it's a fantastic thing that that brand did yes. to support essential workers. So they found ways to keep their employees occupied by doing those kinds of things, um, finding ways to generate revenue as best they could, but you know, most of them really lost a lot of money. And for a large branded hotel, you know, the brands were doing everything they could to, to keep that, for example, hotels, this is a good time to do some renovations and updating. So they recognized that sometimes providing funding to the owners so that they could spend money on updating their rooms, seeing as they weren't being filled with guests. So providing some financing, there were all kinds of creative approaches that brands took. But for an independent hotel, it, it could put you right out of business, no question. Um, if you own your own building and you can afford the taxes on it, you might survive. If you do not own your own building, if you have a large mortgage, there really wasn't much recourse. I think what we're starting to see is as people travel more, um, people who can hang on are going to do just fine, but it has been devastating. And certainly for all the employees, um, it, you know, for people who've given their lives to being a hotel, whether it is a concierge or working front desk or, or serving people in, in the food and beverage outlets or being a room attendant, you know, you lose your job. It's, it's incredibly painful. On the restaurant side, same thing. Uh, restaurants typically, they have high rents. Uh, restaurants are a very thin margin business, right? They, they don't typically have big profit margins, even if they sell a lot of alcohol. You know, you could think you go to a restaurant, you look at the menu and think, oh, they must be making a killing. Look at what they're charging for a steak. Trust me, most restaurants don't make that much money. And so if they're running on a thin margin and suddenly you have no guests, you have a big problem. And so we know lots and lots of restaurants have closed. Um, some of them tried to be flexible and pivot towards delivery, towards making meal kits, towards what we call large format food, which is, you know, making a whole lasagna and selling you that or roasting you a chicken, a whole chicken and selling you that, uh, trying to provide services to people in their communities so that they could get food, even laundry. I've seen some restaurants that were actually saying, look, we have a laundry service, bring your, you know, dump your laundry so we could just send it and, and so to get people to come by and pick something up when they get their laundry. Wow. So, you know, really creative approaches to try to, to both serve their community, but also generate revenue. If a restaurant has the flexibility to do that, and if they have a landlord who's flexible enough to let them do that, because they couldn't generate the revenue that would normally cover the rent. So we saw a lot of restaurants fail as well. And it's, it, again, it breaks my heart, especially as a person who just loves working with people creating new restaurants. And I've had lots of former students create their own restaurants to see places that were great and run really well, just not be able to make it is absolutely heartbreaking. I believe it. Just to follow up on that and have you comment on it, Stephanie, one of my favorite restaurants 
down in Sarasota, which is not glitzy at all, but specialized in salad bars and soups called Sweet Tomatoes, went under. Can you comment on who is still making it or will still make it and who won't or didn't? And the salad bar is one example and outdoor dining, how that's played into all of this. Sure. Well, let's start with your sweet tomatoes example, because let's face it, salad bars and any other communal eating or communal service or communal dining, no, right? During COVID, just not, not viable. Um, not only was it, they were shut down probably for health reasons, but also just people completely changed their perspectives on what was considered to be safe to do. So I'm sorry for your loss of sweet Thank tomatoes, you. but what we've have seen is the restaurants that have survived are the ones that either were small and nimble. So again, this theme of flexibility, if you're small, you have less rent, you have fewer employees, you can change on a dime. And that's exactly what COVID required of restaurants to do. And the places that didn't survive didn't have those things. Either they were big restaurants that had to have a large staff to operate and between not being able to afford that large staff, but also the staff saying, I don't, I don't feel safe being exposed to you know, each other, much less guests coming in. So large restaurants, large staff, large rents, those are things that made it extremely difficult for restaurants to survive. Restaurants that had a concept that required either high-end, high-ticket items, or places you'd only go on special occasions. So the places that are most likely to be flexible are the ones like you described, casual place you'll go frequently and it might be something you do every week. Whereas a place that you would only go to maybe two or three times a year, that's just not enough business to keep those going. The other thing that I think allowed places to be successful, and you mentioned it earlier, is this idea of being able to be outdoors. So if you're in a setting where you can have outdoor space, I saw some really creative approaches to taking over parking lots. You know, you think about a lot of restaurants, especially the, the chain restaurants that are along those busy suburban strips, right? You'll see uh, along with restaurants, there'll be the, the home improvement stores and you'll see the auto repair places, but you've got these restaurants sitting in a big parking lot. Well, they took chunks of their parking lot and turned them into patios. And in some cases did a really unique job with it. They put planters in and umbrellas and then lights and they made them really attractive. If a restaurant had access to outdoor space like that, they had a much better shot of it. Some urban places that you don't have the parking lot around you, but the city allowed you to go out of doors. And I will give cities enormous credit. They recognized early on that they had to be more flexible with their rules. So suddenly dining on the sidewalk was okay. A um, place like New York City before, you had enormous permitting challenges if you wanted to put a table outside your restaurant. With COVID, the cities went, we, we got to be more flexible here. So you saw these, not only restaurants having seats right in front of their windows, but cities actually closing streets and creating these sort of communities of restaurants with outdoor seating right in the middle of the roadway, enormously popular. In fact, I think some cities are thinking we should keep this because it creates a magnet makes businesses more successful, which in turn means more tax revenues. And I think there's there's a possibility we might still see those going. But the restaurants that survived were either nimble enough 
or they had access to outdoor space. And if they were lucky, they had both those things going for them. Okay. I can think of a restaurant that's near me and I'm in the Philadelphia suburbs. That's a very successful restaurant, independently owned and operated. And they set up tables in their parking lot, exactly like you're saying. One other follow-up question. We're still talking about COVID-19's impact. I remember at the beginning of the U.S. belt, which was around March, the interest that I personally had in having meals delivered to me by some of these outfits that do that sort of thing. They prepare them and they deliver them to you. I ended up not doing that, but I'm curious as to your perception, whether or not this is working out. Well, when you think about meals being delivered to you, there's really the two models, right? There's the meal that's already prepared coming to you ready to eat, like you get from a restaurant. And that was with us before COVID. It will be with us after COVID. It obviously was a huge, huge part of people's dining experience during COVID. The other model is the sort of the meal kit, right? Where you had something like a blue apron or a sun basket or a hello fresh. And there's lots and lots of them out there. And if I didn't mention one your readers like or your listeners like, those are a little bit more challenging, partially because people who have gone with these, they love the convenience. There is a lot of uh, logistics involved in those. And the companies that do these kinds of meal kits have discovered the challenges of being both a logistics company, but also a food production company. <laughs> those two things are difficult. And I will tell you that I know people who have tried these, they love the product. They don't like the waste. And you might think, well, the whole point of these is there's no food waste. And that's true. There's no food waste when it comes to your home, but there's a lot of packaging waste. And I think a lot of people are very concerned that they're getting you know, a container for each ingredient. And then those containers, maybe they're recycled, maybe they go back, but it seems like a lot of stuff to wrestle with compared to buying ingredients at a grocery store and making your own. If you're the kind of person who's going to make your own food anyway, that's who the meal kit was, I think, aimed for as someone who wants to cook, but maybe doesn't have the skill or the experience or the time. What I think COVID has showed us is people like to cook. They like to spend the time cooking. Everybody's sourdough starters bubbling away at their homes, right? <laughs> but I think the meal kits, it's a difficult business. And the niche is, I think, a little bit smaller than people realize. Well, that's it for part one of this two-part series with Dr. Stephanie Robson. Please join us next week for part two, when we'll focus on the future of restaurants and hotels and what opportunities you might be able to capitalize on in the hospitality industry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.